13. This is God's word. And as he, Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver over brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. As far in God's word. Many Christians in modern America are attracted with admiration to preachers who stand and speak what they call signs of the times. An excited evangelist will typically talk about an earthquake or the resulting famine or a recent military skirmish, and he will say, quote, on the basis of prophecy, it is, quote, a sure thing that Christ's return is coming any day now, and he will sound ever so confident. Which brings us to our main point, watch out. Do not be led astray into speculating when the world will end, but rather, Trust Jesus, enjoy his good news, testify, and endure to the end. We'll see this unfold in three points. Uh, Watch out, don't be led astray, verses 1 to 8. Watch yourselves, verses 9 through 11. And endure to the end, verses 12 and 13. So we begin with verse 1, Jesus exiting the temple. We read, as he came out of the temple. Again, that's significant. One of the great architectural wonders of the ancient world was this magnificent temple and its accompanying buildings. If you remember, it took 46 years to build. Have you ever, I wonder, stood near a building made entirely of glass when the sunlight is reflecting off of it? It's quite bright. It may cause you to put your sunglasses on or look away. This temple was like that. It was built with very large white stones, approximately the size of a railroad car, some of them, and lavishly decorated with gold in all sorts of places. Absolutely glorious to look at. But then, when sunlight reflected off of it, the building was so bright it was nearly blinding. Truly a glorious sight in this world. The Jewish people believed it would be 
perpetually the very sanctuary of God and therefore indestructible. We can understand the shock of the disciples then when they hear Jesus saying here in verse 2, you see these great buildings, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Quite a shocking statement to the disciples. Verse 2, their superficial admiration of the temple buildings contrasts with Jesus' declaration here of the ultimate bankruptcy of these buildings. Jesus gave his disciples a new viewpoint about the kingdom of God. He's been doing so all along, but they are slow to be able to absorb the implications. They seem committed to the teaching of Jesus, and yet they can't grasp just how it all is supposed to work out. And so here's Mark, our author, bringing to us this passage, expecting us to embrace, of course, the viewpoint of Jesus. The temple is coming down to be replaced with something. Of course, to be replaced, as we know, with the Lord Jesus himself. Uh, No more priests, no more sacrifices. In fact, no more stones on one another. Worship will now be centered in Jesus. As Matthew writes, something greater than the temple is here. Matthew 12, 6. The stone temple was about to lose its central role in the ancient Judaism its central role even in God's kingdom, and the kingdom will now centralize around a new focal point, Jesus himself. So we get to verse 3. The established pattern in the Gospel of Mark is repeated here again. Jesus makes a public statement. His disciples hear him with some surprise and shock. They wait till they get aside with Jesus and then ask him privately, what was that you said out there in public? So this pattern repeats itself here now in verse 3. And notice, though, the setting for them to ask Jesus their private questions. The setting, as we're told, in verse 3, was the Mount of Olives. So you need to track with what's happening from verse 2 to verse 3. There's been movement. Between verse 2 and verse 3, Jesus and his disciples have left the temple and its precincts. They've crossed the way. They've gone up on the hill of the Mount of Olives, up about 200 feet. Then they turn around and sit down, and from there, again, what a sight they had of this glorious temple. What a view. The disciples obviously still thinking about the statement that Jesus had made as they were exiting the temple, it's all going to be torn down. So when they're sitting down and looking at this temple, it's so natural for the disciples to bring it up and say, um, um, destroy the temple, you said. When and by what sign will we know? These were natural questions of curiosity, but Jesus replied ever so instructively, didn't he? We look at how Jesus replied to the disciples. He he replied by expressing concern for their spiritual lives. They had asked when it would be destroyed. Jesus told them not to be led astray. Isn't that an interesting answer? Then Jesus launched into a talk for the next four verses about times when the destruction of the temple was not going to take place. Verses 5 and 6, not while you're being tempted to be led astray, not while many are coming in the name of Jesus, claiming to be the Messiah. I am he, many will say, leading many astray. Verse 7, not while the disciples were hearing reports of wars and rumors of more wars. Verse 8, not when nation rises against nation, not when kingdom rises against kingdom, not when there will be earthquakes in various places, not when there will be famines. 
But these are the beginning of birth pains, not yet the birth, not yet the destruction of the temple here being mentioned. Jesus is teaching between the lines what all of us as disciples of Jesus have needed to hear and need to hear again now. Not everything that seems to be a sign of a future spiritual event is actually such a sign. Not everything that seems to be the sign of a future spiritual event is actually such a sign. Has Jesus not given us a gigantic list just now of things that people ordinarily point to and say, that's got to be a sign that this next step is happening? Jesus himself had just said that the destruction of the temple is something we should anticipate. The temple's coming down. Not one stone will be left on another. But these wars, these earthquakes, these famines, they'll only in a general way show that the time is approaching, but they do not show specifics. They do not show details about when it will arrive. The destruction of the temple will bring with it a kind of birth. It's quite appropriate that he used this phrase, birth pains, or in the King James, birth pangs. It means that a new birth is something, new beginning is something like a birth. The end of this physical temple will introduce something new, a new temple, which is Jesus himself and in him his church on earth. It's an utter change from how we worship God in the past to how we worship God going forward. It's a birth. Here Jesus wanted to clear away from his disciples their natural tendency. What's their natural tendency? To look for signs of the itinerary around the temple's destruction. And if you look then, what actually happened in the next years between when Jesus said this and AD 70, about 40 years later, what happened in those 40 years? How wise was it for Jesus to equip his disciples not to be led astray by this exact list of things when in those next 40 years, there's a lot of those things happening in the ancient world? The political movements, the natural disasters, there was a lot of activity that could threaten to distract the disciples right during those four decades. The disciples must not allow themselves to be misled. They are indeed the building blocks, the foundation blocks of the church. It was crucial for the mission of the worldwide spread of the kingdom that in these next intervening years, these men, these disciples, would not be distracted by thinking this or that is yet another sign. Uh, They would have have enough to do to maintain their witness during those upcoming difficult days. Toward the end of the sermon, I'll mention some more of what I'm hinting at here with those exact signs and events in the ancient world. The the point is clear that the disciples must not be sidelined by fascination when precisely the temple will come down. All the commands that Jesus gives here are what not to do. Isn't that interesting? Verse 5, do not be led astray. Verse 7, do not be alarmed. Verse 9, do not stop guarding yourselves. Verse 11, do not be anxious about what to say during times of unexpected public testimony. And What the disciples needed was not what they requested. I'll say that again. What the disciples needed was not what they requested. They requested an intel intellectual timetable of what to expect and when to expect it and how to know. 
but rather what the disciples truly needed, their shepherd knew, what they needed was cautions to be vigilant in keeping their hearts in the context of false teachers and distractions. They didn't need more signs. They didn't need more dates being given to them. They needed spiritual discernment to not follow the wrong persons, those false teachers that we'll talk about. The wrong persons were the many, in verse 6, claiming to be the Messiah, and, if you jump down to verse 22, well past our passage, the ones described as false Christs, working hard to lead people astray. To not follow them is the task, the command from the Savior to them. So watch out, don't be led astray, the end is not yet. Don't be led astray by buildings, this building while it's here, this building when it's destroyed. Don't be distracted by persons, by events, by world events, government events, natural catastrophes. Watch out, don't be led astray. We move on to our second point, verses 9 through 11. Watch yourselves to spread the gospel, testify, and trust. So here, verse 9, the disciples of Jesus could expect to be singled out for hatred and bad treatment by secular governments, just as Jesus himself has been and will be more after he makes these statements. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has a pattern of warning his disciples. Let me just go over it briefly. Mark chapter 4, verse 17, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word. Mark 6, 11, if any place will not receive you, shake off the dust on your feet. Mark 8, 15, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Mark 8, 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, will also be ashamed. Mark 10, verse 30, this age includes persecutions. Does it ever? But here in Mark 12, there's an escalating tension of this same pattern we've seen arising and strengthening throughout the Gospel of Mark. Here in verse 9, Jesus warned, be on your guard. It's helpful to know that this word here, be on your guard, or your guard, or to see, is the same as the word in verse 5, to see, or to watch. So, for what are they to be watching? Watching themselves, which is why I put Point two, watch yourselves. Be on your guard is a good translation, as you see it there in verse 9. I just want you to see the connection from verse 5 and verse 9 that Jesus is using the same word. Watch, see, be alert. So the warning is not for the purpose that they would avoid or escape persecutions. Look out, they're coming to get you is not the message at all. It's quite the opposite. The warning is so that they will prepare themselves to stand their ground to endure the persecution faithfully. Where do you see that? Verse 9. As verse 9 continues, read with me. They will deliver you over to councils, and you'll be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake. Listen. To bear witness before them. God allows his disciples to be put into these public situations in order that they will testify faithfully to them about Christ and his gospel. 
So Jesus has slowed down the interchange with his disciples while they're there in the Mount of Olives looking across at the incredible temple building. He slowed down the whole discussion and teaching moment from the curiosity of the disciples to the cautions that the disciples didn't know they even needed. Because as the good shepherd, as the master teacher, Jesus knew they needed to be spiritually prepared that the time of waiting for this temple to be destroyed and replaced, the time of waiting may be longer than you expected. And that waiting time may be a time that will put your faithfulness to a very severe test. But in verse 10, for Jesus to specifically mention that the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations shows that there are two questions, when and by what signs will the end of the temple come? Those two questions have not been forgotten by their master. He's addressing them. He just had to get the warnings up there first, and now in verse 10, he's addressing the questions when and by what signs that the gospel first must be proclaimed to all nations. So here in verse 10, Jesus is providing an element of what must happen before the temple end of the temple arrives, namely persecution and the launch of worldwide missions. Both of those things happened, as we know from the book of Acts, that the temple will not be destroyed until the good news has already gone out beyond Israel to the nations. And significantly, the new temple, Jesus and his church, which replaces that physical temple building, will not be a solely Jewish organization. As he says, the gospel is first to be proclaimed to all nations. He's inviting the whole world to come and enter his temple, be in Christ, to repent and believe in him. The spiritual church that Jesus is building up will be a house for our people from all the nations The good news for Jews became good news for the Gentiles too. The Messiah of the Jews came to rescue all, all who will trust in him. This was fulfilled because there's already in existence an international people of God before that stone temple was dismantled. Fascinating how it's all fulfilled. We move on to our third point, verses 12 and 13. Our last two verses is an encouragement to endure to the end. Some shocking statements here of how things will go haywire, how families will become divided over the gospel news, that some families may oppose some of their own members, people may hate believers for Jesus' sake. These are tough words, and so it calls for endurance. There's a set of three of the same verb here, delivered over. Uh, Verse 9, the disciples will be delivered over to the councils to be beaten Verse 11, the disciples will be delivered over to speak during various trials for councils and kings. And in verse 12, a third time, the same verb, delivered over, family members will be delivered over by their own family members, like a father giving over a child, brother giving over brother, a child giving over their parents, each to have them be put to death. So this repeated verb, giving over, is used by Jesus several times, drawing attention to it as a pattern. Uh, The time for the disciples 
between when Jesus made this statement about the temple being destroyed and 40 years later when the temple actually was destroyed was not a time of just passive waiting. It was a time of actively proclaiming the good news, enduring the persecution of, of opposition, and faithfully enduring it all. In verse 13, Jesus promised what will happen to those who are about his work in those ways. He's promising here in verse 13 that the one who endures to the end will be saved. So here the disciples were learning that they could be saved quite apart from the animal sacrifices in that building that they're looking at. They could be saved in a different way other than what they've ever always known. That the animal sacrifices in that building by priests is the way to be saved and get right with God. They can be redeemed quite apart from those wonderful stones, those wonderful buildings, those great buildings in which their Savior and Master Teacher had been teaching until that moment just now when he walked out. Salvation comes in a different way than they've had anticipated before. So verse 1 was profound when it said that the Savior came out of the temple. I suggested earlier that I would draw your attention to that. This is where we we do that. Verse 1 is profound when it says the Savior came out of the temple. It's not simply a movement. It's a profound statement. You see, as a result of Jesus coming out of the temple, the salvation of God was no longer found in that stone temple, but salvation was to be found in Jesus Christ. Of course, that's what it always pointed to. And true salvation could never be purchased by animals being sacrificed. It was always pointing ahead to he, the Lamb of God. So at the time when Jesus spoke the words of our passage, the Roman Empire had enjoyed a long time of peace. But about 40 years later, turmoil upset the whole Roman Empire. And in the span of only one year, for example, Rome went through four different emperors. Now, if you're inclined to fix dates and you're inclined to look for signs and there's four different emperors becoming the Roman emperor in the space of one year, don't you think you'd be a little interested and quite distracted by those events taking place? Mistaken sign after potential mistaken sign was produced. And those who love to chase after those fixed dates would chase after those fixed dates and then some. But the disciples had been cautioned beforehand. If you let your eyes drop down to verse 23, Jesus said to them, I have told you all things beforehand. They had been pre-prepared. They had been coached beforehand. Cautioned beforehand not to involve themselves in the uproar that surrounds such guessing. The cautions of Jesus here are not just for the times in which he's living and for those 12 men. They're not just for the original disciples, not just for those in those first 40 years. These are enduring cautions from our wise Savior. Just think over these last 300 years in Europe alone. Historians tell us there have been 300 wars in 300 years in Europe. When one war is singled out as proof that this or that is going to be, here come the date fixers, 
with mistaken signs to upset new groups of people in a new generation. In the years AD 60 to AD 80, the Roman Empire was thoroughly and repeatedly ravaged by many natural disasters. I mentioned earlier that I'd fill out my point a little bit. They had earthquakes, they had hurricanes, they had fires, they had pestilence, that consequently, of course, famines. Not any single one of these many terrible events could give anyone proper ground to make an accurate prediction about the undoing of the temple or about the return of Christ. Throughout the centuries, consistently, there have been many violent earthquakes. Even our ancient philosophers and historians, such as Aristotle and Pliny, describe seismic phenomenon in their days. And the modern world is no exception. Is that not true? Don't you hear about most of them? Man, do they report to us the seismic activity. One author counted 700 natural disturbances just during a 100-year span, starting in the year 1800, ending in the year 1900. 700 of them. And since the food chain is fragile, famines occur constantly, and they're repeatedly interrupted with all the things here that we're listing. Here's what's key to understand. The disciples made a mistake by lumping together the destruction of this stone temple that their teacher told them was coming, lumping that together with the end of the world. That's the key mistake that they were making. And the confusion of the disciples is made even more clear over in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 24, verse 3, when the disciples asked, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? But Jesus, both in Matthew and here in Mark, consistently distinguishes the two events, the destruction of the stone temple and the end of the world. And so that is key for our understanding, that the destruction of the stone temple can happen at a different time than the end of the world. So as we work through Mark chapter 13, we have to be clear about which one Jesus is discussing, the destruction of the stone temple or the end of the world. And Jesus knew that many of his followers would fall victim to teachers who would say the end of the world is just a few months away. And Jesus said no, that instead these events are simply confirmation of birth pains. It's profound what he said here at the end of verse 8. They're the beginning of the birth pains. Labor pains tell us a baby's coming. But no one knows how long the labor will last. God may cause certain events to be extended for a very long time. Longer than our lifetimes. Or things could accelerate very rapidly and it could all be over by the end of my sentence. We don't know which one. That's the truth of what Scripture and what our, our Savior constantly puts before us. The same is true for future events. Jesus could come tonight or in the next century. 2 Peter 3.8, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And verse 9, 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 2 Peter 
What's the lesson? Be ready. <laughs> be ready. There's a lot involved in being ready. To have a heart of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus. To endure the things that the world brings at us. To carry on the work of worldwide missions. There's plenty to do without us getting distracted. Navel-gazing or looking at this or that natural disaster. This or that certain sign that somebody said. Never allow ourselves to be drawn into a panic by the wrong diagnosis of birth pains or a couple thousand years of spiritual birth pains, the contractions of the universe, as it were. We simply stay ready by being close with our Savior in repentance and faith. So what have we seen? Watch out. Don't be led astray into speculating when the world will end, but trust Jesus, enjoy his good news, testify and endure to the end. Watch out. Don't be led astray. Watch yourselves, endure to the end. And I'll have these three conclusions, uh, four, four applications to us. Number one, we may have to endure suffering. We're never promised here or anywhere else that we will be conveniently swept away up to heaven without enduring any suffering. Quite the opposite. Our Savior prepares us for suffering. Trouble from the world. It can come from the public, from the government. Trouble from natural disasters, it can come from earthquakes, hurricanes, floods, and famines. Trouble from our own flesh and blood is in this passage. Part of counting the cost of being a Christian is to take to heart the teaching of Jesus in passages like this about the suffering that we may be called to endure. Our walk with Jesus Christ may bring us to some bitter words, to some difficult events, to some painful seasons of life. If it does not happen in your lifetime, then you can be especially thankful that you don't have to suffer in these profound and especially difficult ways. But we're called to be ready because we live in a culture today that is increasingly hostile to a biblical viewpoint. We ought to remain ready to put up with an increase of ridicule, mockery, slander, and other forms of mistreatment. Never be surprised that you're receiving suffering for the sake of Christ and being one of his. Number one, we may have to endure suffering. Number two, we're called to be witnesses to Christ anywhere that God places us. A Christian may be unexpectedly called to speak before his whole company, before her government leaders. A Christian may be called to testify before a national gathering of a Christian denomination or a Christian conference. A Christian may be called to testify before his or her gathered family at a special occasion. A Christian may be unexpectedly called to testify before just one coworker in the break room because they have a question or a challenge or maybe in the parking lot on your way to your cars. And in an internet age, a Christian could say something in one place, be unexpectedly and unknowingly caught on video, and that video could then become quite popular, being seen by millions. God could call you to be the statement on that video. God equips us with his spirit to have words full of wisdom, truth, grace, and mercy. And at this time of year, we tell again the stories of the reformers and the courage that they showed. Christ is faithful to his word. He's faithful to us as his witnesses wherever he places us to testify. Number three, don't be led astray into a focus on events happening in modern Israel. Focus on Christ and his church. 
The function of prophecy in Scripture is to challenge us to repent and to believe in God, to serve him and to serve his kingdom. The function of the prophecy in Scripture is not to give us an everlasting curiosity about when and by what signs. In our passage in verse 3, we are told that Peter was one who was there. Peter was one who posed the questions, when and by what signs, and Peter heard the answer that Jesus gave that we've just been studying. Peter was there. Peter took it to heart. Listen to what Peter later wrote, 1 Peter 2, verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. What stones do you think he's thinking of when he writes this? Built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 1 Peter 2, 5 through 10. Peter's reflecting on what he learned from a Savior in our passage. He's talking about the central importance of Christ. He's the stone. We are living stones built around him. That's where our focus needs to be. Not focused on prophecies in modern Israel, but focused on Christ and his church. Fourth and last, always remember and always rejoice in the victory of Christ. Verse 13, he alludes to it in his promise. The one who endures to the end will be saved. How could he say that? only because he knew that he was victorious. Even before he went to die and rise again, he knew he would do it and be victorious for us. Salvation for us, redemption for us. Also victory for spreading his word. The spread of his truth and his grace cannot be stopped. 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 10, from prison, Paul wrote to his young student Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, for which I'm suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Always remember and rejoice in the victory of Christ. Let's pray. Father, give us grace to endure to the end. We thank you for the victory of Christ, risen from the dead, coming for us.